Woman Screams is a horror podcast that explores the cultural messaging behind why women scream in horror films. Content may not be suitable for all audiences. Hello and welcome to When the Woman Screams, a podcast where we break down horror films one scream at a time. In today's episode, we're exploring female horror screams as a response to the Trump administration. And we're asking what these screams have to tell us about female anger as political discourse. I'm your host, Elizabeth Irwin, and on this podcast, we talk blood, guts, and spoilers, so listener discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. Donald Trump's entry into the 2016 presidential race was initially met with humor and not a small amount of disbelief. Could a man who had, only a year prior, served as host of a reality television show really ascend to the highest office in America? For many, the idea was unthinkable. But as Trump's popularity with the Republican base grew, the idea became less a source of humor and more a potential possibility. In this clip from Real Time with Bill Maher, political strategist Steve Schmidt was one of the earliest voices explaining why a Trump presidency wasn't as far-fetched as many thought. Crazy to dismiss his chances to be the Republican nominee. When you have 17 candidates in the race, He's polling at 25% right now. He may collapse, but he may not. And you can certainly be the Republican nominee getting 25, 26, 27% of the vote. And his message is powerful, which is our leaders in Washington are incompetent. The country is falling apart. I'm going to fix it and make America great again. He's not talking about policies. A lot of what he says is nonsense talk, but he is saying, he is saying things. Steve, listen, 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 listen. He is saying, other than the fact that he has no policies, he is saying out loud what millions of people across this country are screaming at their television sets every night. And the notion he can't win, I think, is dead wrong. But But as Trump's numbers rose, so too did his penchant for incendiary rhetoric. Like the chicken or the egg analogy, it's difficult to pinpoint what came first with Trump's rise in base popularity. Were conservative Republicans responding to his often marginalizing rhetoric, or was the rhetoric itself a reflection of what the base was demanding, or possibly both? Throughout his campaign, there were a succession of moments that historically would have ended any other presidential run. These include, but are not limited to, Mocking Disability. Written by a nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. I, oh, maybe that's what I said. Dismissing Senator John McCain's war service. He's a war Five hero. And a half years He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you He's agree with that? He's a war hero because he was captured, okay? othering Hispanic voters. And at the center of America's drug crisis, this is where the Hispanics know it better than anybody. And making xenophobic comments about Muslims. Were people that were cheering in the other side of New Jersey where you have large Arab populations, they were cheering as the World Trade Center came down. But Trump was especially prone to making misogynistic comments about women. 
In October 2016, for example, a video surfaced of a 2005 conversation in which Trump joked about sexually assaulting women. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. Backlash from feminist circles was swift and pointed, with some groups adopting Trump slurs, such as his labeling of Democratic nominee and opponent Hillary Clinton as a nasty woman, as their rallying cry. A contentious election even by Washington standards, Trump's campaign was a clear indication that the culture war, meaning those conflicts stemming from value and moral-based judgments like abortion and immigration policy, was alive and well. When the dust of the election settled, Trump was declared the winner, and the country was left to grapple with its very obvious political divide. Now, popular culture that reflects the mood of the country is certainly nothing new. Horror, in particular, tends to have an especially subversive history when it comes to social criticism. From zombies being a commentary on consumerism to Godzilla reflecting nuclear proliferation worries, Horror films are, by their nature, uniquely positioned to make controversial cultural critiques because they are so easily dismissed outside of horror circles as schlock and gore. Despite Stephen King's often quoted and ultimately misunderstood comment that horror films are essentially conservative in nature, the essential aim of horror is to show trespass of some sort against cultural norms and that has made it the perfect vehicle by which to dissect what it means to be a woman in Trump's America. So today we're thinking about what lurks beneath the screams of three films released during the Trump presidency. Ready or not, Black Christmas and The Invisible Man. Released in 2019, our first film is the black comedy horror hybrid Ready or Not. Directed by Matt Badalini-Olpin and Tyler Gillette, this foray into generational lore and unrestrained privilege offers up an intriguing blend of campy gore and pointed social commentary that feels particularly relevant in the age of Trump. The film opens with a traditional wedding between Grace and Alex Le Domas that belies Alex's status as heir to a wealthy gaming dynasty. That evening, Grace, played by Samara Weaving, is told that it is a family custom for all people marrying into the family to play a game. Grace, whose own history as a foster kid makes her yearn for a family of her own, is eager to participate in the family ritual. But when she pulls the one game card that means that the family must kill her or risk breaking its pact with the devil, a pact that has resulted in the family's vast economic fortunes, Grace's only hope is to survive an evening of deadly hide-and-seek until daybreak, when the pact will finally be broken. Our first scream set comes after Grace has realized the gravity of her situation. Alex explains to her that he knew her pulling the death card was an option, but that he was willing to risk it rather than lose Grace. Husband of the year, he is definitely not. Still, with his help, she is able to escape out of the mansion where she flags down a car filled with adolescent boys in a desperate bid for help. Oh, my God.
there are a few things informing these screams that I think are worth thinking about. Namely, how Grace is rejecting many of the power structures that surround her. Because Grace's screams here are couched in profanity, this moment also reads as a deliberate unraveling of some of the gender constructions we've seen in the character up until this point. From the picture-perfect, virginal white wedding dress that gets shredded and bloodied as she escapes, to her exchanging heels for sneakers in order to be more mobile, Grace's physical transformation has been slowly building, such that these screams represent a substantial character shift. Grace is no longer the quiet, acquiescing female willing to do whatever she needs to do in order to be accepted by this family. But rather, she is now embracing her independence, which includes her finding and using her own voice. Having just sliced a hole in her own stomach in her attempt to squeeze through the cast iron fence that surrounds the Le Damas home, Grace flags down the car filled with adolescent males with an expectation that of course they'll want to help her. But their easy dismissal of her pain and very obvious need for help are yet another reminder to Grace and the audience that her survival is entirely up to her. This realization then takes the form of fucking rich people, an addendum to her scream. Here, Grace isn't only expressing indignation at her own plight, but she's also taking aim at a capitalistic framework that renders some people expendable. Sure, the divide between wealthy and poor has been prominent from the beginning of the film, but only in suggestion. Here, Grace takes that suggestion and names it explicitly for the audience. The end result is an understanding that Grace isn't only fleeing from one family, she's running from wealth and all the connections and privileges that come with it. That the Trump administration represents a particular brand of wealth and power is clear in everything from private Trump family photos that center opulence to corporate tax cuts benefiting the 1%. Many have argued that this administration's policies have contributed to significant income inequality, a fact borne out by the 2018 federal data report that showed income inequality to be the highest it has ever been since data started being kept five decades ago. The casting of a wealthy family and a poor woman attempting to gain, unsuccessfully, entry into the world they represent resonates because it speaks to a divide already apparent to the audience. For women, this divide is then compounded by the additional pressures of gender, especially in the professional world. Whether it's Romney and his binders full of women or Trump appointing twice as many men as women to his administration, it's clear that breaking into a higher economic class comes with additional layers of difficulty for women. It's telling that Grace's most physical battle is with her mother-in-law, Becky, played by Andy McDowell. Previous scenes established that Becky came from a similarly disenfranchised background, like Grace, but all offers of familial love are taken off the table when Becky tells Grace it's either her or them. In my defense, it's been a while. I meant what I said this morning. I thought you were gonna be the new me, but I'm not gonna let you hurt my family.
Becky's scream takes center stage as she rushes toward Grace with the intent to kill her. For Becky, this kill is more personal than it is for the others. We know Becky sees her former self in Grace, and her decision to kill Grace through hand-to-hand combat, as opposed to a weapon that offers some distance, suggests that what Becky really wants is to destroy the former version of herself before she accumulated wealth and power. If she has to destroy another woman to do so, then so be it. The moment suggests that no inherent bond exists between women, especially when one woman is financially privileged and the other is not. Becky's scream contributes to Grace's understanding that she has no one but herself to depend on. With that in mind, our next scream demonstrates her complete rejection of the domestic ideals upon which she has been raised. In this scene, Alex betrays Grace by joining his family in an attempt to sacrifice her, in order to keep the family's pact with the devil intact. But his stab wound to her heart misses, just as dawn breaks. that I think this might be my most favorite scream in all of horror film history because it's primal, it's guttural, and it signifies a complete break with how women are culturally trained to behave. Like the sound of a trapped animal, this scream represents Grace's instinctual desire to fight back. By picking up the knife and brandishing it against those she earlier desired to have as her family, Grace is essentially rejecting the idea that she alone is not enough. Her scream is a primal one, and with it comes a complete rejection of the traditional domesticity represented by her relationship with Alex. And in an era where reports claim President Trump prefers women who work for him to dress feminine and his claims that female reporters have too much attitude, and where Vice President Pence fears being alone with a woman who is not his wife, even in professional capacities, this rejection is pointed. Our final glimpse of Grace is as she sits on the steps, bloodied and battered, and smokes a cigarette while everything burns around her. In the end, she's the last one standing, not because she trusted others to take care of her, but because she took care of herself. Like Ready or Not, 2019's Black Christmas is an explicitly feminist horror film grounded in our current political climate. In fact, the film's social criticism is so pronounced that some critics, myself included, have argued that its politics overshadows its horror elements. But it is also that explicit political messaging that makes this film scream so noteworthy. Directed by Sophia Tikal, the film centers on a group of sorority sisters who are being killed off one by one on their college campus by a misogynistic fraternity immersed in the dark magics. 
The four most prominent sisters are Riley, played by Imogene Poots, Chris, played by Elise Shannon, Jesse, played by Brittany O'Grady, and Marty, played by Lily Donahue. Our first scream happens in the movie's opening moments. Lindsay, played by Lucy Curry, is walking across her college campus at night alone when she realizes that someone is following her. But when Lucy's calls for help go unanswered, she is forced to confront the masked assailant alone. Carl trope that opens many slasher films is certainly nothing new, and Lindsay's death sequence here is a fairly traditional one. As she walks across the desolate campus, we feel a sense of dread that slowly escalates in keeping with the building music. Lindsay's realization that she is being followed and her attempts to reach out for help, both by calling her friends and knocking on the door of some tranquil-looking home adorned with Christmas decorations, indicate her awareness that she is in danger, but it is her screams for help here that most fully express her panic and fear. Takal's decision to open the film this way is likely a nod to the genre, but it's also doing much more than that. By beginning the film with a stalking sequence on a college campus, Takal is framing the narrative as one explicitly reflecting the Me Too movement. Coined by community organizer Tarana Burke in 2016 as a means of unifying stories of violence against black women and girls, the movement gained additional exposure in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein court case and has become a cultural shorthand to describe women who have been sexually harassed and or assaulted. The image of Lindsay walking alone at night is enough to create a very real sense of fear in the audience because we recognize that the potential for violence is very, very real. According to RAIN, an organization devoted to eradicating sexual violence, 23.1% of undergraduate females experience rape or sexual assault, and 4.2% of college students experience stalking. Lindsay's scream gives voice to these numbers and reminds the audience that threats of violence toward women loom in spaces even once thought to be safe. The threat of violent infiltration continues in our next scene, where Chris, having had enough of the threatening messages the sorority has been receiving, responds to the caller with threats of her own. Fearing reprisal, Riley yells at Chris for always being too confrontational. Their argument is interrupted when a bow-wielding mass figure enters the house. What the fuck? Get out. Go. 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 You made your point. Why did you back here? I just called the police. They'll be here any second. Marty. Marty, if you leave now, you can save yourself. The dialogue that precedes these screams is important because it reflects feminist division over the best way to deal with threats of sexual violence. Riley, a rape survivor, is fearful of drawing too much attention to herself, and she wants to call the police for help. But Chris, whose overt activism has made her a target in the past, 
believes in taking matters into her own hands and confronting would-be harassers directly. But when faced with an outside threat, the two instinctually band together. Marty's decision to sacrifice herself so that the other two can flee reiterates to the audience that, despite their ideological differences, these women are united in sisterhood. The argument that happens between Riley and Chris is also a reflection of how women voted in the 2016 election. As a white woman who still believes that institutional structures will save her, Riley is expressing a sensibility seen in a significant number of female Trump voters. According to the Pew Research Center, 47% of white women voted for Trump, while 45% voted for Clinton. And while that number isn't quite as significant as the 52% initially claimed by the Trump campaign, it does indicate that more white women than not were willing to overlook not only the numerous sexual misconduct charges against Trump, but also his own misogynistic rhetoric. But as a black woman aware of layers of intersectional oppression, Chris's mandate to fight back carries with it an intimate understanding that institutional structures typically don't solve for sexual violence, but rather contribute to it. Election data reveals that 94% of black women voted for Clinton, with 4% voting for Trump and 2% voting for another candidate. This overwhelming rejection of Trump and his policies is based on a rejection of the status quo and a refusal to accept Trump's racist and misogynistic rhetoric just like Chris in the film. And the film does ultimately come down on the side of Chris. In our final scream, Chris leads a group of women into the frat house where Riley has been taken against her will. You messed with the wrong sisters. Chris's scream in this moment encapsulates a lot of things. Rage at men intent on rendering women submissive, and frustration that these battles must still be fought. When Riley says to Chris during the melee that Chris was right all along and finally agrees that they have to fight back, it's an acknowledgement not only for the need of women to stay vigilant against forces of oppression, but it's also a validation of those women who repudiated sexism, racism, homophobia, and xenophobia at the ballot box. Our third film takes up a central question of the Me Too movement. What does it take for a woman to be believed when she alleges abuse? Based on H.G. Wells' novel of the same name, 2020's The Invisible Man revolves around Cecilia, played by Elizabeth Moss, who believes that Adrian, her abusive ex-boyfriend, has discovered a way to be invisible, and is using that knowledge to continue to physically and psychologically torment her. To tell Cecilia's story, writer and director Leah Whannell interviewed domestic abuse survivors in order to ground the story in fact, and the end result is a careful rumination of some of the reasons why women might be reluctant to report abuse, particularly if those allegations are made against powerful men. Our first scream comes early in the film, when Cecilia attempts to flee from the house in which Adrian has all but imprisoned her. Having just entered her sister's car, Cecilia's hope for a clean getaway is interrupted when a violent and angry Adrian suddenly appears. Are you okay? I'll explain later. Just go, Emily. Go. Open the what is happening? Jesus! 
So there's a lot bubbling beneath this scream, not the least of which is an understanding of the importance of audience buy-in with regard to Cecilia's struggle. By front-loading Cecilia's fear in the beginning of the film, Winnell is ensuring that the audience aligns with Cecilia and that no space is created to doubt her story. Because the scream is so clearly coming from a place of fear, it conveys to the audience that Cecilia truly believes that Adrian poses a threat to her well-being, a belief that is then solidified when Adrian appears and smashes the window as he attempts to drag Cecilia from the car. The National Domestic Violence Hotline reports that one in four women have been the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner, and that nearly half of all women in the United States have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner. Additionally, the CDC reports that 10% of women report having been stalked by an intimate partner. These numbers are important because they reiterate the fear Cecilia feels toward Adrian is valid and very much warranted. These statistics also inform Cecilia's initial scream in very real and concrete ways and positions the audience to not only believe Cecilia, but to align with her. They also highlight the need to show Adrian's aggression on screen, lest some in the audience doubt Cecilia's story. And when you consider that a 2018 NPR poll showed 40% of those surveyed believe the Me Too movement has gone too far, and that 79% believe that people accused of sexual assault should be given the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise, that alignment, even if it's just in film, is a very powerful thing. This is, after all, a film that questions how you make others see a threat that appears invisible. So ensuring that the audience grasps the enormity of the struggle Cecilia faces to be believed is what allows viewers to become incensed when she is doubted and gaslit later in the film. This scream acknowledges the fear is part of the abuse cycle for Cecilia and for people like her. It's also telling that this moment is witnessed by her sister Emily. And yet despite the fact that Emily has seen with her own eyes the abuse Cecilia has suffered, Her decision to abandon her sister later in the film suggests that continual proof must be supplied in order for accusations of abuse to be believed. In the absence of concrete proof, even those closest to us may have doubt. In this next scream, Emily agrees to have dinner with Cecilia in a crowded restaurant. As Cecilia tries to explain that she is being framed, an invisible Adrian slits Emily's throat. What is that? some kind of suit that Adrian has built. And it has cameras and it somehow... What? (laughs) The scream we hear in this scene comes not from Cecilia, but from an unnamed spectator of the crime. And it matters that the spectator in question is a woman. She is able to use her voice to draw attention to the crime and, in doing so, frames the events of what transpired, both for the other people in the crowd as well as for the police officers who arrive. Without any eyewitnesses who can say conclusively that they saw Cecilia kill her sister, this one woman's scream becomes a powerful tool to silence the truth a silencing that is only compounded by Cecilia's own traumatic muteness. 
It's impossible in this moment not to be reminded that some women, simply by virtue of their privilege, are viewed to be more credible than other women, particularly those with complicated mental health histories. Unable to advocate for herself, the police refer to psychological reports that cast Cecilia as mentally ill, reports that were generated at the behest of Adrian. Here, Adrian's wealth and privilege enable him to leverage power structures represented by the police and medical professionals against Cecilia and to reframe her actions for his own benefit. In doing so, the film reminds us that there is nothing invisible about intimate partner violence. There are signs, but the institutional structures entrusted to respond to those signs are easily manipulated by those with money and means. How privilege is codified and replicated comes into play in the final scream of this film. Having agreed to meet with Adrian in the hopes of getting him to confess, Cecilia soon excuses herself from the dinner when it becomes clear that Adrian has absolutely no intention of confessing. In her absence, the security cameras Adrian has had installed to monitor Cecilia's every move shows him slitting his own throat. Please, please, you have to help me, please. I'm with somebody and you think he's, he's trying to kill himself. Cecilia's scream at seeing Adrian in a pool of his own blood at first reads as shock to a bloody spectacle. But we quickly realize that her scream is by design. She's deliberately using the very tools of oppression that were leveraged against her. The reveal that she donned an invisibility suit and killed Adrian in a way that echoes her sister's death earlier works from a horror standpoint because this revenge sequence definitely provides catharsis. Neither the police, nor the legal system, nor even her familial loved ones are able to help her in the end. Cecilia decides to save herself, and having been along for the ride for Adrian's reign of torture, we understand that murder is the only real option left for Cecilia. But that realization is deeply troublesome, because it suggests that the only way for someone to survive abuse is to adopt the tools of the abuser. Because the history of the Trump administration is still being written, it's impossible to fully grasp the impact this period will ultimately have upon horror film storytelling. But one thing is very clear. Responses to our current Trump-exacerbated political divide are already being written. In these screams, a voice is given to the frustrations and fears of American women, whether showcasing the many ways intimate partner violence is perpetuated, to grappling with questions of intersectionality and privilege within the Me Too movement, women are screaming in these films as a means of asserting their own agency against a culture seemingly committed to silencing them. This wraps up our look at female anger as a response to Trump-era politics. If you're interested in reading more about the topic, I recommend Make America Hate Again, Trump Era Horror and the Politics of Fear, edited by Victoria McCollum, Me Too Political Science, edited by Nadia Brown, and Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan and Beyond by Robin Wood. All comments, gripes, and observations can be sent to our website, link in the description. This wraps up season one of When the Woman Screams. Special thanks to the Humanities Center at Lehigh University for the funding that made this season possible. We hope to be back soon with more episodes, but in the meantime, 
keep on screaming.